Good evening, my friends, and welcome back to 62 Horror Movies with Josh Hitchens. That's me, where I'll be your host for a creepy double feature every night in October. Come join me, won't you? So tonight is October 21st, my friends, and it's really hard to believe, but after tonight's episode, we only have 10 more nights uh, of the month of October, only 20 more movies after tonight's episode in our 62 horror movies series. I'm having so much fun doing this, and I hope that you folks are having fun listening to it, whether you're listening to it uh, live day by day, or if you come to this later on on my Patreon. I hope you're having a good time, because I'm having a blast just talking about my favorite horror movies and things I enjoy. So tonight, on October 21st, this is Stephen King Night on 62 Horror Movies. And first up, we are going to be watching and talking about the television miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot, released in 1979 and directed by the great Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist fame. And then after that, we are going to be watching and talking about The Shining, adapted uh, and directed by Stanley Kubrick, released in 1980. And there's a lot to talk about with both these movies, but I'm going to try and keep it to 15 minutes each as best as I can. So, Salem's Lot is actually the very first Stephen King novel that I ever read, and I think it's still my favorite. Uh, I reread it at least once every year. Uh, And the genesis of Salem's Lot is kind of fascinating. So it was Stephen King's uh, second book. His first book was, of course, Carrie, made into the indelible film uh, by Brian De Palma in 1976. Um... So after that, uh, Stephen King spent a lot of time as an English teacher before he made it big as a writer, and Dracula by Bram Stoker was always a novel that he taught to his students, and he loved Dracula, and Stephen King got to thinking of what would happen, you know, like Dracula travels to England in, you know, late 19th century and tries to infiltrate the society, what would happen if Dracula came to America in the modern day? And one day, Stephen King asked his wife, Tabitha, uh, who's also an author and was an author when Stephen King met her, um, he asked his wife, Tabitha, what would happen if Dracula came to New York City now in the 1970s. And Tabitha said he'd probably be run run over by a car like Margaret Mitchell. Uh, Margaret Mitchell is the author of Gone with a Wind who died by being hit by uh, a car, tragically. Um, and then Tabitha King thought about it for a little bit 
And she said, but what if Dracula came here to Maine, where she and Stephen King lived and still do live? And that is what sparked the novel that would become Salem's Lot, of if a vampire, a king vampire, came to a small New England American town um, and infiltrated it and wreaked havoc. Uh, so, the novel that Stephen King wrote, uh, he originally wrote it under the title Second Coming, and his wife Tabitha basically told him that was a shitty title because it sounded like a porn movie, and she's very right. So then Stephen King called his novel Jerusalem's Lot, which is the full name of the town. The publishers didn't like that because they thought it sounded too religious, so... He shortened the title to Salem's Lot, the nickname for the town, which is just a perfect title. Um, Obviously, you know, calling back memories of Salem, Massachusetts and the witch trials and the supernatural there. Um, But using Salem's Lot as the name for his novel and the name for his town. And Salem's Lot is a great, great book. If you've never read it, please do. Um, it's really remarkable, remarkable because it does such a great job of setting up the world of this small New England town in the 1970s with all its myriad of residents from all these different classes and how a vampire infiltrates that town very slowly over a period of years. It's very gradual that the vampire takes over this town until all of a sudden the vampire has nearly everyone in the town. And there's a small band of fearless vampire killers, just as there is in Dracula, trying to combat this great evil. It's so, so well done. Salem's Lot was a book that, and is a book that, I don't think it's possible to do as a feature film, um, because you need that time to build the world of the town and introduce you to the characters and how slowly the vampires infiltrate and take over the town. Uh, So it was fortunate that Salem's Lot ended up being produced as a television miniseries in two parts. Um, Two parts that are both about 90 minutes each. They were two hours with commercials, obviously, but put together without commercials. Salem's Lot is a film that runs for three hours and three minutes, and I think It is the perfect length for this story to be told. It's a long movie, but you do not feel the length of it. Uh, And as I said, this television film adaptation of Salem's Lot is directed by Toby Hooper, um, and who was hired for Salem's Lot on TV specifically because of his work directing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, And Toby Hooper did such an incredible job uh, doing this movie. Um, He said of 
Salem's Lot that it was different from his other films in that, you know, because it was for television, he couldn't go all out with, like, the gore and the horror. So it was all about the atmosphere and the build-up. And he said that uh, his Salem's Lot just had the atmosphere of the grave. Um, and it really does. Um, you know, it's this typical small town... And like every small town, as we've seen in a lot of movies we've talked about, like with John Carpenter's Halloween, released a year earlier, 1978, um, the town of Salem's Lot has its own haunted house, the Marston House up on the hill, which in the television adaptation looks very, very much like uh, the, the house from the Bates house from Psycho, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's film from 1970. And they actually built the entire facade of the Marston house for this film because the town that they made the movie in did not have a house in the location they wanted that looked as creepy as they wanted it to be. Uh, so they changed it. Uh, like... Many great horror movies, Salem's Lot also has a really terrific score. Uh, and the score for Salem's Lot was uh, written and conducted, or composed and conducted by Harry Sukman. And this actually ended up being the last work he ever did. He died in 1984, just a couple years later. And I'm just going to put on the main theme uh, for a moment while I talk about the great casting of this movie. <gasps> So, in adapting a novel like Stephen King's Salem's Lot, um, even in a three-hour film for television, there's a lot of concessions that had to be made. Um, uh, the, the cast list, the number of characters, is significantly reduced from what you see in the book, and a lot of characters are combined, but there are still a lot of them. There are enough of them to give you that that feeling of a tight-knit, small New England town where everyone knows everything. Um, and this movie is filled with great character actors. Um, first, in the lead of the film, you have David Soule as Ben Mears, um, a writer uh, who grew up in Salem's Lot and had a horrific experience in the Marston house as a child and is now returning as an adult many years later to try and make peace with the horror that he found and maybe get a book out of it. Um, you also, in this cast, kind of in the second lead, the co-lead, uh, James Mason as Richard Straker, who is the main minion and the public face of the king vampire in this world, um, Kurt Barlow. And James Mason is an actor who uh, has such an extensive filmography, and 
he's always great in everything he does. Um, he plays Humbert Humbert in Stanley Kubrick's version of Lolita, which is another one of my favorite movies, Among and in the uh, A Star is Born with Judy Garland. James Mason had an incredible career. Um, but towards the end of it, he kind of accepted really any offer that came to him. And his role as Straker in Salem's Lot is truly one of the best roles he got uh, near the end of his career. He is so delightfully and deliciously and subtly sinister as Straker. Um, really does tremendous, tremendous work. You also have the young Lance Kerwin as Mark uh, Petrie, um, who is a, you know, high school kid who is kind of an outcast. He's tall, he's skinny, and he's very, very into horror movies, especially like the old Universal films. You know, not a character I would relate to at all. He's really great. Uh, but in the supporting cast of Toby Hooper's film version of Salem's Lot, it is just an embarrassment of riches of character actors um, from old Hollywood movies. The chief amongst which is one of my favorites, Elisha Cook Jr., who plays Weasel, uh, who is sort of the town alcoholic. And Elisha Cook Jr., uh, if you've listened to all the episodes of this podcast, you know we've talked about before, he's in... Uh, he's in the Maltese Falcon uh, with Humphrey Bogart, but his horror career, he is in the original House on Haunted Hill, 1959, with it, with Vincent Price. He is in Rosemary's Baby in 1968, directed by Roman Polanski, and he shows up again here for the third and final time in 62 horror movies um, in a really terrific performance in Salem's Lot, released in 1979. Uh, the conception of the king vampire, Kurt Barlow, in Toby Hooper's version of Salem's Lot is very different from how he appears in Stephen King's book. Um, Stephen King's book, he's kind of normal-looking, kind of a almost like cultured Bela Lugosi hybrid Christopher Lee kind of vampire. Um... But for the film version of Salem's Lot, Toby Hooper really wanted to go back to that that Max Schreck Nosferatu 1922 F.W. Murnau version of a vampire that is just horrific to look at and repulsive. And they succeed. He really is terrifying. Uh, and Kurt Barlow, the king vampire in Salem's Lot, is played by an actor named Reggie Nalder. Um, who really hated the the shiny contact lenses they he had to wear for playing a vampire. Um, and he's not the only one. There are many other actors in this movie that have to wear those contact lenses, but I won't say who. Um, but they could only be worn for 15 minutes at a time, uh, any longer than that, and they would 
permanently damaged the eyes. They were very, very, very painful to wear. And after wearing them for 15 minutes, they had to be taken out. And then you had to rest the actor's eyes for at least a half an hour afterwards before putting them back in, which made filming very, very laborious, but it's worth it. Uh, the Toby Hooper version of Salem's Lot of 1979 is also notable for introducing what became a vampire trope of sort of the vampires floating in mist outside of a person's window, scratching at the window, begging to be let in. And they actually accomplished that special effect without any wires because they didn't want people to see wires. They actually used cranes and a tremendous amount of fog to make those scenes happen. And they filmed them also in reverse to make them look even spookier and unnatural. And... For anyone who saw Salem's Lot when they were growing up, those scenes with the vampire child outside of the window scratching to be let in, that is some of the most terrifying shit. That will haunt your nightmares. Um, and I think it's really, really amazing that you don't see a lot of overt vampire action in Salem's Lot until the halfway point, until 90 minutes into this 183-minute uh, movie. Um, it's, it's all world-building and suspense and atmosphere, and you just can't look away. And that makes the second half of Salem's Lot where... Things just go crazy with the vampire takeover, even more satisfying. Uh, there was a feature film version of Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot that was released in Europe um, that cut well over an hour of footage from the original American television presentation. Do not bother watching that. Uh, watch the original three-hour, three-minute television cut of Toby Hooper's adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. It is, I think, one of the great vampire movies and one of the great Stephen King adaptations. I don't know if a better adaptation of Salem's Lot will ever be made. They've tried. Uh, it, it was an abysmal failure. Uh, don't even bother. But this is a great movie. Well worth your time watch Salem's Lot, and we'll come back for another of the great, great Stephen King adaptations with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. These are, of course, the unforgettable and deeply creepy opening credits for The Shining, adapted from the novel by Stephen King, directed by Stanley Kubrick, released in 1980. Now, the Toby Hooper's adaptation of Salem's Lot really succeeds because... Even though it's altered um, and condensed for time, 
it's still a very faithful adaptation of Stephen King's original book. Whereas, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining takes the general premise and the bones of Stephen King's novel, and then Stanley Kubrick and um, co-screenwriter Diane Johnson really go their own way with it and create... I think, an entirely new nightmare from the bones of Stephen King's book. And I think, for me personally, this is one of those rare instances where a somewhat radical adaptation of the source material is better than the original novel. Uh, Stephen King has gone on record many, many times publicly with how much he hates uh, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining because The Shining was a very personal book for him because Stephen King uh, in the 1970s and 1980s was an alcoholic, was a drug addict, chiefly addicted to cocaine uh, and the fact that the main character in The Shining, Jack Torrance, is also a writer who is dealing with his alcoholism and um, has a wife and a child as King did at the time and is later tries to kill them. Uh, it, it was a very personal story for King and he felt that Stanley Kubrick did not respect that, felt that Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance was just crazy from the very beginning and um, hated that Kubrick changed the character of... Um, oh my god, why am I blanking on her name? My goodness. Uh, the char the uh, Wendy Torrance, the wife, uh, Jack's wife, Wendy Torrance. In the book, she is a much stronger character. Um, and Shelley Duvall in Stephen King, in uh, Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining, is pushed really to the brink of madness and breakdown by Stanley Kubrick as a director, which is something that I will talk about more in a little bit. Um, but Stanley Kubrick, with his film version of The Shining, just creates just unforgettable and deeply unsettling and disturbing images in this film. And many of them have nothing to do with the book. Some of them are drawn directly from the book. But with The Shining is a movie that, again, takes its time. It's about almost two and a half hours long. Uh, but it really gets under your skin and into your psyche. And once you see it you don't forget it. It haunts you, um, this film. And that's why I think it is one of the greatest horror films ever made. Um, and let's talk a little bit about how this film came to be and why it is so incredible. So Stephen King was inspired to write The Shining, which was his third novel after Carrie and Salem's Lot, uh, because he and his wife Tabitha and their young son happened to spend the night at the Stanley Hotel. Uh, and it was the end of 
the season at the Stanley Hotel. And Stephen King and his wife Tabitha and their son had a dinner that night uh, in a dining room that was huge and luxurious, but it was empty except for them. And uh, which made it even more eerie, there was a band that was playing for no one but them in this huge room. And the Stanley Hotel is a massive hotel. Um, it actually is a real haunted place. And there, the Stanley Hotel gives ghost tours to this day. Um, has its own fascinating history, which I encourage you to look up. But that night... Uh, that they stayed there, and they were the only guests there. Uh, Stephen King had this nightmare about his young son being chased down these endless labyrinthine hotel hallways um, by something horrible. And he woke up from that nightmare and started writing The Shining. Um, and Stephen, uh, Stanley Kubrick is notorious uh, for being very picky about his source material. Um, he is considered one of the great American directors ever, and he absolutely is. Uh, but he was not prolific. Um, there's only a handful of films that he made, and all the films he made were very intentional. And after he made A Clockwork Orange, after he made Barry Lyndon both of which, of course, are brilliant movies, as all of his movies are. He was looking for the next thing, something that was different. And his secretary uh, said that he would just ha have just stacks of novels delivered to his office that he would read as potential film ideas and he would read them for a bit and then Stanley Kubrick would get fed up with them hated them and he would throw them across the room and they'd hit the wall and the secretary could hear them hit the wall and then a day came when some book hit the wall and Stanley Kubrick started another one and then she noticed that he hadn't thrown the book at the wall for quite a long time. It had been hours that he'd been reading it. And that book was The Shining by Stephen King. And that was how Stanley Kubrick got uh, involved in this movie. And Kubrick was really interested in the idea of a ghost story and interested in the idea of what a ghost is, what being haunted is, you know, because, like, the definition of haunted is that it is a place inhabited by a ghost. But the secondary definition of haunted is... Um, an, a human experience of anguish or torment. And that's a thing that he really plays with in The Shining for much of its running time, is that you never quite know if what is happening is all in the head of Jack Torrance or if the house is really haunted. Uh, 
But there's a lot of evidence that the Overlook Hotel uh, is actually haunted because the child in The Shining, Danny Torrance, has a sixth sense. He has the shine. He's able to know things. Um, and he's the one, this child, who experiences spirits first in the house. And I think one of the reasons why The Shining is one of the most terrifying movies ever made is that it really gets ghosts right. As someone speaking personally who has seen spirits all my life, the thing this movie gets right is that you're going about your day going walking around a place and then suddenly you see people that are just there just suddenly there and you have this innate sense that what you're seeing is wrong that what you're seeing should not be in front of you and yet it is and you see that when Danny sees the apparitions of the Grady twins, these twin girls who, uh, as Kubrick shows you, were hacked to death by an axe. Um, and they're just suddenly there, just in at the end of the hallway, just watching, looking at you. And for me, again, speaking only personally, that is what it's like to see a ghost that you're going about your day and then all of a sudden there's something there right in front of you that looks like it's real but you know it cannot be real and you just feel that there's something deeply wrong about it and that's where the fear comes. Um, the imagery that Stanley Kubrick brings into The Shining, those indelible shots of the elevator doors parting to release just this river of blood into a hallway, um, the horror that exists in room 237, um, which was changed from the novel. Uh, it's room 217 in the book, but the Stanley Hotel actually has a room 217, so Kubrick had to change it to, uh, to 237, where it's a beautiful woman, and then it turns into this decomposing old hag corpse ghost. All those things, um... There's And then, of course, in the latter half of The Shining, when the supernatural goes bonkers, there's lots of images that are deeply unsettling. Um, and the one I think a lot of people gravitate towards is uh, when you see that uh, door open into a room and there is a person in a bear suit clearly uh, performing oral sex on an older man. And that, incidentally, is directly from Stephen King's original manuscript for The Shining. Um, if you go online and search for uh, The Shining before the play, 
that is actually the prologue to Stephen King's book that was cut by publishers. And it's a shame because it gives a lot of backstory into the haunting of the Overlook Hotel um, and explains that particularly disturbing image. Um, the Shining is also a movie that is deeply about isolation, about what happens when you are basically quarantined in a place with other people, your loved ones, and sometimes in that state you just go mad. And in that way, I think The Shining is an extraordinarily relevant horror film uh, in the time that we're living in. I, I really can't say enough good things about this book, about uh, the book, The Shining, and the, the film that Kubrick made. I do think, and I've said it in previous episodes, I think that Shelley Duvall's work as Wendy Torrance in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is one of the great, great performances in horror movie history. Um, and I say that with the caveat that Stanley Kubrick was extremely cruel to Shelley Duvall during the filming of this movie. Um, he doted on Jack Nicholson, really let Jack Nicholson do whatever he wanted, let him improvise, like the whole famous here's Johnny moment that happens. That was Nicholson's idea that he just did. Um, but he really, Kubrick really made Shelley Duvall uh, go to the brink of madness for her performance in this film. He was extremely, extremely cruel to her, isolating her from the other cast members, from the crew, got very, very angry when anyone expressed sympathy for her. And it actually got so bad that Shelley Duvall's hair began to fall out. And Shelley Duvall actually took tufts of her hair that had fallen out went as they were in the midst of filming and thrust them in front of Stanley Kubrick's face to show him what he was doing to her. I, I, as brilliant as this film is, as brilliant a director as Stanley Kubrick is, I cannot defend or condone his behavior towards her. Um, it's absolutely reprehensible how he treated this woman. Um, but she gives, I think, one of the greatest performances in horror movie history. I think she is absolutely incredible. I bow down to Shelley Duvall's work in The Shining. She goes places in this movie that... I myself, as an actor, do not think I could go and come back. Shelley Duvall, I think, especially for folks of my generation and maybe the generation before me, 
was kind of ubiquitous in my childhood because she also created the show Fairy Tale Theater, which aired on HBO, where uh, it was her show. She produced it uh, was and hosted it, was very in control of it, and made these truly wonderful uh, and very interesting adaptations of old fairy tales in her fairy tale theater, um, which I also encourage you to seek out if you've never seen it. Uh, I think I also have to mention that Shelley Duvall now um, has for many years struggled with deep mental illness. Um, just a couple years ago, she did an interview on TV where she is clearly not well. She is clearly detached from reality and deep in psychosis. And it really breaks my heart to see. And I hope that she gets the help that she needs and deserves. But Look look up Shelley Duvall's history, um, I, because I think people forget her, and I don't think people should forget her, especially now. And I can't help but wonder, in watching The Shining and knowing all the things about the making of this movie that I do, I, I can't help but wonder if what Stanley Kubrick did to her in this movie to, you know get the performance out of her, uh, perhaps contributed to what is happening to her now. Uh, with her work in The Shining, I think you do not get to that level of hysteria and anguish and mental anguish without it being real, at least partially. Um, so... Don't forget Shelley Duvall. However, I do think The Shining is one of the great horror movies ever made. Um, it is a movie of winter. Uh, if I do a 12 Days of Terror scary horror movie thing uh, in December, like I'm mulling over, I might talk about The Shining again and talk about different things than I have this time because there's so many fascinating facets to this movie. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it comes with a price. And I think that is important to note. And I would feel remiss if I did not talk about it. The Shining is a movie that once you see it will haunt your dreams forever. It will leave you asking questions and it will make you think twice the next time you stay at an old hotel of what might be lurking in the past. So watch The Shining and we'll come back and close out the night.
Thank you for listening to 62 Horror Movies with Josh Hitchens. That's me. Tomorrow night, we're going to have a spooky summer camp night and watch Friday the 13th from 1980, followed by Sleepaway Camp from 1983. Until then, happy Halloween, my friends.